Well, as you know, we've been making our way through 1 Timothy. In fact, Lord willing, next week we will finish 1 Timothy in preparation to move to 2 Timothy. But in the context of our communion supper, the Lord's Supper we're going to take this morning, I'd invite you to turn, to, turn over to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. I've chosen this psalm for a number of different reasons, one of them being I reference it quite a bit. That's not the primary reason I've chosen this psalm. The primary reason I've chosen Psalm 23 this morning is because it's, it's, it's one of those iconic passages in Scripture. Uh, most of us sitting in this room probably could quote Psalm 23 from memory, probably some of the first Scriptures we ever heard or listened to or memorized. And if we've ever been to funerals, typically Psalm 23 is posted somewhere on a bulletin or a memory card and one of the things that happens when that happens to a particular portion of Scripture is it becomes so rote to us that we forget the beauty of it. We, we, we forget or we miss the depth and richness, the very reasons why it became iconic in the first place. And so in preparation for this week, just over the last several weeks in my own life, of constantly finding myself coming back to Psalm 23 and letting the truth of it wash over me, these things that really are true, that really are true about God and are true about us, those things that Satan so often wants to hide from you and me, wants us to forget that we have a shepherd. He wants to fill us with lies that we shouldn't be in the valley of shadow. He wants to fill us with lies that there really is no table prepared for us in the presence of our enemies that God doesn't really want us to have green pastures and, and quiet waters. And so I come around to this psalm this morning as we think about the sacrifice that Jesus made for us as believers of laying His life down. He called Himself, in fact, the Good Shepherd. And as the Good Shepherd, He did something for us that this table represents in giving His body and shedding His blood so that we, the sheep, could walk in freedom, could walk in joy, could walk in assurance, and could walk knowing that we have provision. And if you're like me, you need to be reminded of that again and again and again. And so this morning, without further delay, I'd like for us to turn our attention now to Psalm 23, and let's read it together. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So ends the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Father, thank You for this psalm. Thank You that most of us could have stood here and quoted it from memory. And Father, thank you for the, the gifts that are still therein, the things that our eyes sometimes miss or our hearts sometimes look over. 
Oh God, use these next few moments to remind us of the richness of the shepherd we have and what that means for us as believers. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. When you come to this psalm, it stands out. It stands out for its brevity. It stands out for the description that David makes here. So often in the Old Testament, we think of God and His holiness, His justice, His righteousness, His wrath. We do think of God and His chesed, His steadfast love. That word is actually used in this psalm. We think of God as compassion. We think of God as, as king, as, as warrior, as Lord, all the things And David invites us in this nice little psalm, this very brief little poem, to consider one more aspect of God, not to the exclusion of the others, but in addition to. So he is all those things, but he's a shepherd. He is the shepherd of souls. And beloved, as we're going to talk about here in just a moment, the work of the shepherd is a very down and dirty work. Shepherds get dirty. They get in the mess of the sheep. And because of that, because of that, it becomes a highly personal work. Because the sheep are not impersonal to the shepherd. In fact, for him to lead them well, he has to know them. And so often in real shepherding, he knows them by name. He knows them by sight. He knows their proclivities. He knows their own propensities to their own little mischief. And he can look at this one and say, nah, uh I know what you're trying to do. And hey, uh uh-uh, back off. Because he knows because he's personal. And David invites all those, I all that in to him calling, the Lord is my shepherd. Not just my God, not just my ruler, not just my overseer, but my shepherd. And it's very personal. And so when we think about that, it, it's God, when, when we tie this together with what we're thinking about this morning, it is God's role as shepherd that brings redemption. Jesus comes as the good shepherd, not just to stand around with his sheep, but to deliver them from the brink of disaster, which has been caused by sin, and to pull them back and give them that which they require. And so when we think about shepherding in God's economy as it's, as it's as applied to the Lord, it is redemptive. The goal of God's shepherding ministry with his people is redemption. And I'm going to prove it to you from this very psalm. David says as much. And so when we think of what is the hope of the redeemed, what is the hope of the redeemed? Well, we could add a lot of things in there that would be the correct answer. Today, from this particular context, from this particular psalm, the hope of the redeemed is that Yahweh is in fact our shepherd, so that we're not alone. We're not left to ourselves. We're not, as Kansas says, dust in the wind. We are people made in God's image. We are people who have been given a creator and a sustainer, and not just the creator and sustainer, but a shepherd, one who leads us. And when you think about the king of the universe inspiring David to speak of him as a shepherd, and all the connotations that go with that, as I've already said, shepherd were probably rough men, brusque, probably talked like sailors in in common parlance. In fact, in the ancient world so often, the testimony of a shepherd wasn't even believed because they were known to say, the fish I caught was this big. They had a propensity to stretch the truth, and yet that's exactly how God allows himself to be referred to as, this shepherd, this one who though all through all appearances 
is one who's faithful with the sheep, who doesn't turn from danger with the she- or from danger leaving the sheep. So when we think about that, one of the things I want to ring in your head when we speak about God being a shepherd is that he is present. He's not aloof. He's not indifferent. He's not far off. He is with us. He is present. He is there. He is among us. And so when we think about what is faithful shepherding, and this will, this will go, could go with real shepherding or this spiritual idea of shepherding that David is getting at here, we think about the, the notion of what really is faithful shepherding. Well, it's a combination of two things, really. It's a combination of presence, we've just said that, being present, being there, and it's provision. So it's a combination of being present and providing. And under that heading of provision, we could think protect, give sustenance to, give leadership. So faithful shepherding, a, a faithful shepherd is one who does, is, or is present. He's there. He's with the sheep. But he's not just standing around and as wolves pick them off, he goes, oh, man, too bad for him. He's providing for them. He's there. He's, as David says, when the bear and the lion came, I killed them and beat them off. And that is what God is for us. And I know sometimes we do feel like we're twisting or we're dust in the wind. And that's exactly what Satan wants us to think. But what David, this is why the psalm is so important. He, keeps, he, comes, he brings us back to the simple notion that the Lord is my shepherd. Now, that's a bold, big statement. The Lord is my shepherd. And everyone who's in Christ this morning in this room can say, the Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. That's who He is. He's mine. But that statement, when we make it, that is the premise statement of this psalm. That's the premise of this psalm. The, the, the thesis of this psalm is, the Lord is my shepherd. And he spends the rest of it talking about exactly what that means. And so he begins by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. And I'm going to insert this little phrase. Since that is true, I shall not want, or I shall not literally the Lord is my shepherd, I do not lack. So quite literally, I do not lack. And so the consequences of Yahweh being our shepherd, firstly, is that we do not lack. Now, what does David mean there? What is he driving at? Well, he's driving at this notion that what I need for life and community with Yahweh and his people, Yahweh graciously gives me. So I don't lack those things. What I need for faithful service in the kingdom of Yahweh, I have. Now, that doesn't mean it's painless or, or without obstacles or hardships, but what I need to live in community with God and His people, I have, so I don't lack that. What I need, we could, in the context of the table, what we need from the great shepherd of our soul, Jesus Christ, for redemption, we do not lack it. We've been given it in the body and the blood. And so, First and foremost, we have this overarching statement, the premise, the Lord is my shepherd. Consequences, what is the ripple effect? First, I I don't lack anything I need for redemption. Secondly, he begins to list them out. Verses 2 and 3. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. We'll stop right there. So we think about a green pasture. What I want for us to think about 
is a, pa- a lush pastor, a pasture. It's green. It's vibrant. It's living. There's plentiful there. What does he mean, lie down in green pastures? To rest in the abundance of who God is. God is the green pasture. God is the place of abundance. God is the one who, who causes rest. And I, I want for us to see that that's very important. Why do we rest? Because we toil until we find it. Because we have that object out there that we reach for that gives it. Because we have these momentary things, our habits or whatnot that, that give it. No, that's, none of that is true. We, we, we do those things. We do reach for it and grab for it and have those objects that we hunt for. But what David says here is, He, the Lord, makes me rest or lie down in green pastures. So what is the root cause of rest? Nothing in this earth. It is the Lord. Nothing in this earth will give the rest that the Lord gives. He leads me beside the still waters. Uh, Literally, it's a great translation, but he leads me to the waters of refreshment. So think of a still water as a place of peace where it's tranquil. But I want you to think, if you're a sheep, you want to go to still water where you're sure to get refreshment and there's nothing in there coming at you or the water's not moving and you're constantly having to search for it. No, 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 no. It's there. It's this refreshing water. It's what Jesus would tell the woman at the well in John 4, it's living water. It's water that gives life and sustenance. That's David's point, that God leads us to the water that gives life. To the water that truly quenches the thirst. Like Jesus told the woman, if you knew who it was you were talking to, you would ask him for living water and you would never thirst again. And, of course, she makes it about actual water, and Jesus is telling her something about the Spirit and its work that she's just not comprehending. Psalm 23 is doing something very similar. He's talking about, David is talking about a water here that gives life, that gives wholeness, that gives peace, that gives security. Not a water that's a ticket away from everything that or all conflict, but a water that gives us the very things that we actually need. So when we think about this, I've kind of said this already, it bears repeating, it is God personally through the work of Christ who leads us to refreshment because we have a blank that we could fill in. When I want refreshment, I go to blank. When I need refreshment of my soul, I turn to blank. And we, that whatever's in that blank for you, if you're honest with yourself right now, you know it never really does. It gives you maybe happiness in a moment, but the next day you wake up and you're still in the same predicament. What Psalm 23 is saying, if we really want refreshment of soul, if we really want restoration of soul, or if we really want to be beside still waters, that comes from God, our shepherd, who leads us there. And then he builds on this a little bit further. He restores my soul. Literally, he returns my soul. He puts my soul where it should be. The soul here, some, some translations say life. That could work. I like soul. That's a literal translation of the word. But why? 
because the soul here, and in most contexts in the Old Testament with that word, it's the essence of who we are. It's the very core of who we are. So you and I, we are ravaged by sin and Satan. We deal with sin in ourselves. We deal with sin in the world. We deal with Satan's uh, attacks in, in the world and in ourselves. But there's one who can actually return our soul to its place of refreshment, and it's Yahweh. It's Christ. Because Satan, the world, sin, and death are relentless. Our souls do get out of whack because we give in to this lie or that lie, because we believe this half-truth or that half-truth. And David has said, here is the good shepherd, the shepherd who takes you, soul, to the core of who you are and turns it back to what is good and true. That's why it's followed. He restores my soul. How? What does he do, David? He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So that, that needed restoration comes through God's ministry, comes through God's ministry, the primary uh, revelation of that is the incarnation itself. How did God ultimately put into practice Psalm 23? It was Jesus in the incarnation that led to the crucifixion and resurrection we have before us. But He leads us in these right paths for the glory of His own name. That's what He says, for the glory of my name, not for your glory, but for my glory, for your good, but for my glory. But I love that the personal nature. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. He does it, not anybody else. And when we think about that, the, the biblical pattern is there. When you look at the Exodus in Exodus, who is leading the people on the path to freedom? Yahweh is. Whether it's a pillar of fire by night or a cloud by day, it is Yahweh who leads His people through the ministry of Moses, of course, of course, but it is Yahweh who leads His people. When we see the incarnation, who is it that leads the disciples, the apostles, and the church? It is Jesus personally incarnated who leads His people. He doesn't delegate that out. That is why He could say with faithfulness that He is the good shepherd. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness, or you could say it the right paths either way, for His name's sake. So when we think about this, we need to understand that Yahweh leads us in the good. He does. What is good and true and beautiful, the Lord leads us there. But there's another side to this, and that's the, the remainder of this psalm. He also leads us in the difficult. We are told in Scripture that He will never leave nor forsake us. But see, verses 4 through 6 here are the things that we struggle as Christians to believe the most. And I want to lay this out very briefly. When you see number 4, even though, verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, if we were to take that literally as it's written in Hebrew, also, when I walk in the valley of death's shadow, I will not fear evil. So why bring that out? 
Because David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling you, when it, it, it's not if you walk, it's when it happens, and it will, it's going to happen, so it's not an if, but a when, reminding us that hardship is inevitable, that we have all these beautiful things that God does give us green pastures and still waters. He does restore our soul. He does lead us in the paths of righteousness. But when we walk through the valley of death's shadow, He is with us. Now, when we think about that, that word, that shadow of death is an interesting word. The overarching meaning is shadow. But there is a death component to it. That's why I hyphenated it, and we'll call it the death shadow. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, the sense of the word is a a deep, dark valley or ravine. Think of a valley or ravine so dark that predators could easily hide in there because you can't see them. And they can come at you. They can attack you. In, in other words, it's where the predators dwell, there is danger there. In the, va- in, the de- in the valley of death's shadow, there is real and present danger there. And so when we think about the world we live in, evil is inevitable. The evil that we see in society is inevitable because when we look at our world, it is filled with death's shadow valleys. And so the evil there is real. But what does he say? Even though I walk through this death shadow shadow of death. I will not, I will fear no evil for you are with me. So we don't fear because the shepherd is with us. It's not as if to look at the evil and say, wow, that's nothing. That's silly. That's stupid. Evil is real and we walk through hard times. The fear can, can dissipate, i.e. we don't have to live in fear, i.e. In, exa- in, in constant anxiety and so to pull back and just decide to withdraw from the mission and do nothing, which is a lar- a, a, you know, often the, the temptation. No, because the shepherd is with us, he gives us grace to walk through it. What does this mean then? When you think about the death shadow, the valley of death shadow, why do we not have to fear ultimate evil? Because if we're truly in Christ and our souls are saved, Jesus says, don't fear the one who can take your body. (laughs) Fear the one who can take your body and soul. And when our souls are secure in Christ, the valley of death's shadow, it, it doesn't have command or control over us any longer. If there's anything you take away from this this morning, I want you to take that away. You don't have to live in fear. Are there things that, that kind of can, can make us quell as we think about facing them? Yeah, I'm not trying to downplay what's really evil and hard. Courage isn't the absence of fear per se. It's the willingness to trust in the midst of our fears. And so why can we not ultimately fear? And that fear there is the terror that would cause us to withdraw because the shepherd is with us, and we can stand in courage knowing that we have hope. And so, when we look at this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod and the staff implements, you know, implements one you would beat off the beast, the wild beast, and the other one you would use to guide your sheep. So God has the instruments of comfort. Of comfort. Now remember, what it doesn't say this is, my rod, my staff will give you perfect ease. That's not the promise here. Not even close. It says, in the midst of the valley of death's shadow, I will comfort you. 
I will be a comfort to you. I will not turn you over to despair. Because you are not alone. If we could press that into our souls, we are not alone. We are not alone. Oh, Brad, I believe that. So, does, so do I up here. But so often, it fails to translate to here. And so I keep having to respond to situations because I'm in this alone. I'm by myself. There's nobody with me. There is. There's the good shepherd who is walking with me. David continues, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So again, let's still think of death's shadow. So preparing a table in the presence of my enemies. There's two ways you can take this, and both, both make just as much sense to me, so either way is fine. You can take this as one, as my enemies are coming at me, but I'm so comfortable in the Lord. I, the Lord has given me such comfort and peace that I can enjoy a banquet in the face of my enemy's onslaught because I'm secure in Yahweh. That's one way you can take it. The other way you can take it is God has already, as the good shepherd, defeated my enemies. And in their presence, as they onlook, beaten by the good shepherd, they are watching me feast in joy and mirth because the Lord has provided for me. Both of those translations or both of those interpretations to me are beautiful. You can take it either way. I think it's a little bit of both. We don't have to fear in the presence of our enemies, and we can enjoy God's good bounty because He is with us. And we do know that that meal is a victory meal, that even as, as the onslaught of the enemy comes, they're already defeated because Christ has won. So God lavishly provides. We enjoy His provision. He anoints my head with oil. So that, that's two acts. There's a medicinal aspect to this. God gives me the ointment that my body needs to be soothed and my soul. But there's also a consecration aspect of this. He anoints my head with oil. What does he do? He says, this one is mine. You are consecrated to me. He is not food for the enemy. He is a son or daughter in the kingdom. Full cup. My cup overflows, which is a fine translation. Um, my cup is full. My cup is full. That full cup we lack no good thing. And you know what that full cup reminds us? That the cup is constantly full. The cup is constantly full. What that tells us is God is not miserly. He is generous. He is giving. He is loving. David ends this by saying, Surely, surely, Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And there's a few things here I want to address very briefly before we end. Uh, surely goodness or, and mercy, that word mercy there is the word chesed, and it does mean steadfast love. And this is God's covenant love for His people. So surely God's goodness and His covenant love and the word there, follow, it does mean that, but it's written in such a stem that it's a bit more aggressive. It doesn't just mean the covenant or the goodness and covenant, steadfast love of God, simply follow us. The word actually in that stem means pursue. So now it's not just that we're followed by God, we are pursued by God, and not by God's wrath, His goodness and steadfast love. 
And so now it's not just, oh, God's mercy and goodness will follow me. It's they won't let me go. They will pursue me to the utter end as a hunter does its prey. And I love that idea. We have one final thing. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The word dwell in Hebrew and the word return, I'll I'll, I'll spare you all the grammatical stuff. When they're written in a certain tense and pointed a certain way, they are identical words. And so good Hebrew scholars have to decide, is this dwell, yeshav, or is this turn or, or, or return, shuv? But when they get in a certain tense, they're the exact same word, and context has to dictate. It is more likely that David says here, and I shall return to the house of the Lord forever. Now, Brad, why is that important? Because David is getting at a sense that he has gone out from the Lord and lived the earth, and when his days are over, he is returning back to the Lord to live with him forever. So what is David hinting at? beloved resurrection. He's getting at this idea that when we follow the good shepherd, we live our lives, that surely goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life, and when my life is done, I shall return to the house of the Lord forever. And it's hitting the note that Jesus would fulfill, the greater son of David would come in and say, that's exactly right. In me, you will return to the house of the Lord forever. I can get into all the text criticism stuff of why we have dwell here and not return, but I will not bore you this morning because I want you to come rejoicing at the supper. But the idea here is that we will return. Actually, you could take these both in this sense. We will both return and dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We will return to and dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so when we think about this, Yahweh shepherds our souls all the way back to his house. We are placed on the earth by his mercy. We are given life through his mercy. He gives us mercy as we live our lives. And his promise is, is I am walking with you every step of the way. And when your earthly pilgrimage is done, I am bringing you back to my house where you will dwell forever. Beloved, that is the work of a redeeming shepherd. That is the work of a good and loving God. That is the work that we have been brought into if we are in Christ this morning. What a reason to celebrate. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word, this psalm, its beauty, its richness. Thank you for the power that it presents us with and the picture. Oh, Father, your mercies, they are new and they are great. Your steadfast love is genuinely incomparable. There's nothing like it. And so, Father, this morning, we give our hearts and minds and lives to you as you prepare us for the supper. Remind us, this is not just a thing we do. This is a reminder that the good shepherd came to earth, shepherded us to himself, shepherds us now in the direction he wants us to go, and keeps us until we stand before our good and great shepherd, and we hear, welcome home. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.